Thank you, Clay and musicians. Let's pray as we consider this passage of Scripture. Spirit, we ask that you would be present in our midst, working in and through us, speaking through me, uh, piercing the hearts of those, and that as a result of the preaching of your word this morning and all the things that we do as we gather here, again, we ask that we would be transformed more into the image of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what's, what's wrong with the world? We, uh, universally. We believe there's something wrong with the world. I mean, you ask anybody on planet Earth, they'd say something's not quite right. What's wrong with it? Well, Christians have a word uh, that, they, that we use to describe what's wrong with the world. It's what I kind of consider an antique word. Uh, you know, a word that just feels a little out of place. Like if you walked into somebody's utility room and you saw a washboard from like the 1800s and a bucket and a bar of soap and a wash rag and a clothesline, you'd think, that's interesting, a washboard. They're still using a washboard. When we give our answer to what's, problem, what's the problem with the world, the word we use to describe it is antique-ish. It feels a little out of place. Kind of like the washboard in a 21st century home. Uh, but it's, it's apt. The word is sin, by the way. That's what, that's what the Bible calls, that's what went wrong with the world. Um, but it actually is very helpful. And as I, as I think about it, it may be just the word we need to recover, kind of as a culture. We talk a lot about it. A couple weeks ago, we said that sin cuts and bends. Remember, uh, we, we said it, it's sort of like a, a leaf on a tree. Sin cuts us off from life with God, just like a leaf being cut off from the tree, and it falls to the ground. And what happens after the leaf falls to the ground? It begins to bend in on itself. It withers. It goes from being green and supple to brown and crusty. And that's what sin does. It cuts us off from life with God. It bends us in on ourselves, and we slowly begin to die. That's what sin does. The scriptures use this term is I can't you can't just give it a simple definition because the, the term there's such a richness to the term just in the Old Testament alone there's three words that are used to refer to sin there's the word iniquity which refers to um, kind of our our penchant for twisting things from what they're supposed to be into something different there's the word transgression which refers to our crossing boundaries that we shouldn't be crossing. And then there's the actual word sin that's used in the Old Testament, and that simply means miss the mark. It's actually like a there's a, there's a passage where it refers to uh, people slinging, a slingshot, and they, they sin, they, they miss their target. That's what it means, missing the mark. And we are image bearers of God, and therefore we are to image God in the world. And when we sin, we miss the mark. We don't, we don't do that. We're not representing God on earth. We're not imaging him or idling him, is the literal word, on earth. Those are different terms for the actual actions of sin. But here's, here's another important thing about this concept of sin. 
We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In other words, there's a more fundamental problem. Our sinful actions are not what cause us to be sin. Our sinful actions are a result of our sinful disposition to God. And here's, let, let me just try to really distill this. Let, I think if, if we had to just boil this concept of sin down, this is, I think, as simply as I can get it, and I think be accurate with what the scriptures teach us. Sin is not seeing God. It's not seeing God. Missing God. I'll try to illustrate this. We have two dogs, and they, they're squirrel hunters. And for me to, actually, for me to call them squirrel hunters, that's a little generous because they've never caught one. Um, they, they, they like to chase squirrels. And here's what happens. They go down to their, out to the back, and they see squirrels, and they're barking and yapping, and, and, and the squirrels scurry up the trees. But our dogs don't realize that they've scurried up the tree. And I'm watching the squirrels kind of looking down at them almost in a taunting fashion. But they're clueless. Their nose is to the ground, and they're tracing or, or, or uh, sniffing around, uh, getting traces of the squirrel on the ground, but they don't think to look up into the trees where the actual squirrel is. And that's what sin has done to us. We have these traces of the divine, traces of God, and we're, we're busy looking, rummaging about creation, nose to the ground, when the actual target of all of those desires is above us, in the trees, it's God in heaven. And, and we think that, you know, if, if we could find the right thing in creation that can deliver what our soul looks for, we can find it. And we get, like I said, we get traces of it in creation. There's a lot to be found, a lot of joy to be found in things of this world. There's a lot of satisfaction, a lot of delight, a lot of happiness by sniffing around in creation. These little fleeting moments of pleasure and delight. But in the end comes up short. It comes up short because creation could never absorb the infinite desires of the human heart. It just can't. You know, uh, Bruce Marshall, a, a Scottish pastor, has famously said that when, when a man is knocking on the door of a brothel, he's really looking for God, that he's seeking the pleasures of God. And we, can, we might also add, if you're knocking on the door of an Ivy League college, you're seeking the approval of God. If you're knocking on the door of, of a job on Wall Street, you're, you're seeking the security that only God can provide. If you're knocking on the door of life with kids, um, you're really seeking God. If you're knocking on the door of athletic success or athletic success for your kids, you're really seeking God somewhere deep in your heart. It's a longing for God. And this is what led... Uh, Augustine to say, St. Augustine, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And that's what sin does. It causes us to not see God, to keep our nose to the ground of creation and seek to find God within a piece of his creation, not the creator. Remember Jesus healing the blind person? And one of the points in, in, in those healings is to say, you guys are all like this blind person. You're spiritually blind. You don't see me. I am your goal. God is your goal. Just like the squirrel in the tree is the goal of our dogs. But you're, like the, you're just sniffing around the ground, around creation. You're not even looking for me, nor do you even think to look up to where I am. 
And thankfully, I mean, it's a pretty dire situation, right? It's kind of sad to watch these little dogs scurry about and squirrel right above them, three or four feet above them in a tree. That's our predicament. And here's the thing. Jesus, God did what, what we could never do. Jesus, rather than saying, he came down to us. He came to our lostness and our blindness, and he came to seek and save the lost. We don't see him, but he sees us. He's the God who sees. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. We're going, we've got two scenes that we're going to consider. There's a scene where Sarai and, and Abram do not see God. They're failing to live life in reference to God. And then there's a second scene where God sees Hagar. So those are your two points. Sarai doesn't see God. That's point number one. Point number two is God sees Hagar. Okay, those are the two points. So the first point, Sarah doesn't see God. A little background. Uh, as you will recall, last week God cut a covenant with Abram. Uh, the blood path ceremonies, two rows of animals and blood comes into the middle and this flaming pot, a smoking pot of fire and a flaming torch pass through the elements and, and, and what God is communicating to Abram and to us as well is these promises that I've made, whether you keep them or not, I am going to be faithful to them. That covenant is a resounding declaration of God's faithfulness to his promises. And here's the thing, we see this so often in scripture. When God kind of gives a person a mountaintop experience, when he speaks to them and there's a revelation made, there's a, there's a fall that follows, a subsequent fall. Noah, God makes a covenant with Noah, appears to him, and then what happens next? Noah's sloppy drunk, naked in his tent. Uh, David, God makes a covenant with David. And David enjoys some military success. And what happens next? Adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And what happens shortly after? He's called Satan by Christ. <laughs> like, get back, Satan. Right? And, and, and no exception here. We have this wonderful experience in Genesis chapter 15, followed by Genesis chapter 16, which is a failure on the part of Sarah and Abram. Look at verse 1. It says, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And, and likely what's set in for Sarah at this point in the story is menopause. So she is now officially unable to have children. And she could not have children during her fertile years. So, so this, like, now it's doubly a problem. Doubly hopeless. So she, can't, she has no children. She did however, have a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, you remember that, the, that Abraham and his clan came out of Egypt with loads of male and female servants, and it's likely that Hagar was in this mix of people. Okay, so this is where Hagar comes into the picture. And so Sarah says to Abram, she's got a plan. I see no way out of this situation. We're not having any children, and therefore I've got a plan. I can see a way out. And here's her way. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is verse 2. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, before we think this is crazy, I mean, this is just, this is messed up. This is actually a common practice 
in the ancient world. It's, it's written into laws that we have coming out of this period at this time. That if a family could not have children, that a servant could be a surrogate for, uh, for the child. But here's the point. And by the way, that's not condoned by Scripture. It's not condoned by God. And so Sarah's looking at the situation. She's not looking up to God and his sovereignty and providence and power. But she's looking at the situation on the ground and looking exclusively on the ground. And she's saying, I see no way out of this. Therefore, I'm going to take the situation into my own hands. And Hagar can be the surrogate mother for my children. And in verse 2, again, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram says, okay, we'll do it. And but by the way, th- this verse right here, it's, it's um, structured in exactly the same way as Adam's line after Eve eats the fruit. And Adam listened to the voice of his wife of Eve. And it's th- that, that structure only exists in these two places in the whole scripture. So, you know, a surface reading, you kind of look at this and you're like, oh, polygamy, the Old Testament, sort of approving. To... The Old Testament's not approving of polygamy at all. In fact, every time it's presented, it's presented as a major problem for all those involved. And this is no exception here. And the, the fact that we get this, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, it's sort of cluing us into the fact that this is a problem, Okay. This is a problem. Let's keep reading. So, verse 3. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Okay, it's been 10 years that they've been waiting for this. Um, Sarai, and we know who Sarah is, right? But look at what the text says. Abram's wife, as if to say, remember, this is Abram's wife. It's, it's, it's it's, It's pointing out to the fact that this is a problem. Sarai took Hagar... The Egyptian, not his wife, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So now Hagar is, his, is, is, uh, is also Abram's wife. And then, and, and then uh, Abram, verse 4, went into Hagar and she conceived. And then it says, when, she, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, guess what happens? She all of a sudden looks on contempt with Sarah, okay? Now, and this is only the beginning of the train wreck, but all of a sudden, little Hagar's thinking, well, I'm Abram's special new wife. You know, Hagar's young, Sarai is old. She could, and by the way, we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. In the ancient world, a woman's, and I'm not saying this is right, a woman's value was reduced to her ability to have children. In fact, if you could not have children in this world, it was deemed as a curse from the gods. The gods had cursed you. And here's a little Hagar, new confidence. I'm Abram's special. Abram's, all these promises of Abraham are going to come through me. And therefore, old Sarai, I mean, we, we just discard her. Like, she's kind of irrelevant at this point. And so Hagar all of a sudden starts showing that kind of contempt for Sarah. I mean, we can imagine the tension (laughs) that this creates. What seems like the perfect plan at the beginning is beginning to self-destruct. 
If you live, so here's, if you live your life with your nose to the ground, seeking fulfillment below when it's only to be found above, things are going to get messy. And, and so it is here. But it gets even messier. Look at verse 5. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Look what Abram says. Verse 6. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Like, not my problem. I'm not getting into this mess. You deal with her. Okay? That's what he says. And so, as a result, Sarah, Sarai, dealt harshly with Hagar. So harshly. So abusive. In fact, the term here is the same term used to describe how the Egyptians treat Abraham's children in Egypt. Same word. So Sarai's treating Hagar with that sort of harshness and cruelty and abuse. And so Hagar bolts. So Abram is in this mess that's been created. And rather than step up to the plate to deal with the mess, what does he do? Not my problem. You figure it out, Sarah. I want you to notice, Abram has been, he's been tearing it up, like in the world, negotiating these land deals with Lot with great uh, courage and generosity. He's gone on a military campaign to rescue his, his friend Lot. He's conquered a world power. Like he's tearing it up in, the, in, the, in kind of like the world out there. But now we get a little window into what Abram's doing domestically, like in his home. What's, t- what's going on in Abram's tent? And he's sort of neglecting his responsibility there, in the home, in the household. And men, I, I'm going to talk just a moment to men specifically. And let, me, let me say this too. As a church, we, we, we hold what's called, we're, we're complementarians when it comes to male-female relationships. Male and female are equal and image bearers of God perfectly equal uh, in their value before God, but they have different roles. And we believe that the scriptures teach male headship, that, that, that husbands are to lead their spouses. That doesn't mean that husbands are to like bark orders. They're to lead as Christ led the, leads the church, right? Constantly laying down their lives for their wives and their families. But back to Abram. Men, You may be tearing it up in the workplace, like just crushing it out there. And then you get home and you think, I've done pretty good in the workplace. This is my my spot to just sort of crash. When I get home, all responsibility falls to the wayside and I can just be me. And what the scriptures tell us is, no, that's not right. In fact, maybe your responsibilities might even be heightened here at home. They only begin there. So let me ask you, like in the home, are you, are you serving your wife and your children? Are you leading them? Are you praying together and leading your family in prayer? Are you reading scripture together? Are you reading the Bible? If, and, and here's the thing. If you think, maybe you have children, they're four and five years old. If you think that's kind of weird at age four and five, there'll be a time when they're 14, 15, 16, 
And you'll, you'll maybe want to do it at that point. It's going to get really, it's really weird at that point, right? When the, when the stakes are a lot higher, there's like boyfriends and there's girlfriends and there's car driving and they're, they're out away from your care. Start the practice when they're young, reading and praying and make that a normal rhythm in the home. Remember we talked about homes being little, little churches where, where we lead our families into the worship of the Lord? Do that. Because, listen, this failure of Abram in the home to deal with this strife and contempt between Sarai and Hagar leads to massive problems that persist to the present day. Do you know Ishmael is the father of Arab? Arabs trace their lineage back to Ishmael. Muhammad traces his lineage back to Ishmael. Um, Islam, of course, traces its lineage back to Ishmael. And this comment, we're going to get to it in a second. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But we're going to get to this comment that he's going to be a wild donkey of a man that's going to be butting up against his neighbor. Look, that's kind of still going on to the present. That butting, clashing, strife, contempt. Um, and Abram's there, and he's, he could at least begin to deal with it. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. We're going to see this leading to conflict for generations Hundreds and thousands of years. So, see what has happened here? The, Sarah and Abram are operating outside of faith. They're looking, they're basing their, their actions exclusively on what they see, not on the promises of God, and they've engineered a solution. And as one commentator puts it, Sarah and Abraham believe that they're overcoming an obstacle, right? We're going to get a child. But what they're doing is they're actually creating new obstacles. They're creating new obstacles. Uh, Hagar is now pregnant and on the run, right? Vulnerable. A single mother, all alone, anybody alone in this desert wilderness is vulnerable. And here's a pregnant mother on the run. Sarah is, is embittered and feels worthless. Abram has now lost a wife and his one and only son is gone. She left. She fled. Going back to Egypt to find a place there. But praise God. Even though we live by turning our eyes away from him. That's what sin does. He doesn't turn his eyes away from us. And we see that in this next point that God sees Hagar. Look at verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So Hagar, she's had enough. She's abused. Um, and she's, she's leaving. Uh, and she's going back to Egypt is where she's heading. And it says that an angel of the Lord appears. Uh, and, and the question that commentators wrestle with is, well, who is this angel of the Lord? I happen to think that this is a pre-incarnate Christ, that this is Jesus showing up to her. And the reason is because it has the definite article, the angel of the Lord, and that's not used in every instance, it's only used a handful of times, the angel of the Lord appears to her, which, by the way, angel doesn't mean, uh, it can also mean messenger, the messenger of the Lord. And later, Hagar is going to actually address this angel as God, you are God. You are God. The pre-incarnate Christ is showing up and presenting himself to Hagar, who's on the run. What does he say? Look at verse 8. Hagar, 
servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And again, remember the uh, Arab people trace their lineage back to Ishmael and to Hagar. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So Jesus, the angel of the Lord, gives a a promise, a blessing to Hagar. And it's a blessing that any ancient Near Eastern woman would love to hear. That within your womb is a nation, a people, a great multitude of people. You are going to be the mother of a nation. And then we also learn that he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Now that may not sound flattering to you, and it's not. (laughs) He's going to be... He's going, to be, he's going to have a streak of independence. And he is going to butt up against his neighbors. And there is going to be violence. There is going to be conflict. There is going to be strife here. But nonetheless, you're going to be blessed. And there's going to be a great nation that comes forth from you. Verse 13. And so she calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen the one who takes care of me. And therefore, the well where she was was called Be'er Lehi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. So what does she call Jesus? What does she call this angel of the Lord? I believe the pre-incarnate Christ. What does she call him? The God who sees. He sees. And he has especially good eyes for seeing the oppressed. This whole thing is sort of reminiscent of the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus sees? She's, uh, she's hated. There's contempt for her. The children of Abraham and Sarai have contempt. The people of Israel have contempt for the Samaritan woman. And as a result, she's sort of on the run, so to speak, right? She's been banished. As a result of her race, as a result of her sins. And she's staring at her at the well, and Jesus appears to her and gives, gives her his promises. And here's the thing. While we're sniffing around creation, looking for what can satisfy us, and sort of ignoring God as the default of our heart, that's what sin has done, Jesus comes and he sees us and he pursues us. Are you bullied like Hagar? Jesus sees you, and he has good purposes for you. He's caring. He's the one who looks after you, as Hagar says here. Are you experiencing suffering at work or in your marriage? Or are you finding difficulty in your singleness? Um, He sees you. Jesus does. And I know we say this every week. And let me me, I, I I know, too, that there is a script that you have in your mind Where you say, okay, this is what the Word of God says, but I've got a more powerful script that I live out of that I've sort of whipped up over the last 20, 30, 40 years of my life. And it's a script that says, no, he doesn't really care. He doesn't. 
this is, this is more trustworthy. The, the Word of God is more trustworthy than that little script that crops up in your mind every once in a while that says, no, he doesn't care. He doesn't see you. He doesn't know what's going on. This is just all a big, this is just all a big sham, right? It's all going to end in disaster. That's what our hearts often think. But he sees us, he saw Hagar, and he sees us. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says. He says, are you aware that God sees you? Right where you are, he does. He sees you as you are and where you are. He sees where you've come from and where you're going. He sees what you need and what you don't need. Above all, he sees what he wants to make of you and how that final glorious product is to be achieved. You cannot see it. But it is precisely for that reason that you must lay down your own wisdom and return to the path that God has given you to walk in. And lest we doubt, like we have an advantage that Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and the, everyone in the Old Testament doesn't have. We live post-Christ, where we see the manifestation of God himself coming down, incarnating himself into this world, and demonstrating his love to us. Dane Ortland in, in that book, Gentle and Lowly, that we've, we've talked about some, uh, he gives a, a good picture of what is going on. He says, imagine, imagine that a doctor who's been trained as a doctor and has, is independently wealthy. Um, he's got the best training in the world. He's got all the medicine that he needs, all the supplies, and he flies into this remote, primitive village to heal uh, people that are dying of, of a rare sickness, and they can't, they can't heal themselves. He comes in from outside, and he lands, and they, he gets there, and he says, I've got, I can save you. I can heal you. But they, they don't, they're, they're very leery. Who is this guy that just flew in? What, what, what does he really want from me? And so they don't come to him because they, they're skeptical. They're wary of, 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 of what he's providing. And then two or three brave, courageous souls come forward to get healed. How do you think that man, feel, the, the doctor, feels at that point? It's complete joy. This has been his whole this is his whole purpose in life. This is his calling. This is what he's been training for and preparing for and raising support for is to come help. And so it is with Christ. We often think that he's like, all right, I forgive you. I, I, like, it's, I, see, I see you in the sense of I see what you're doing. Now stop it. That's not, that's not the posture. That's not the disposition of Christ towards us. He's, as we said in the call to worship, he's gentle. He's lowly. He takes delight in showing his love and care to sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of your love towards us, that even though we kept our, are keeping our noses to the ground and rummaging through creation, seeking to find uh, you, actually, that's what we're after. Um, you didn't leave us to our own destruction, but you came, and you came to bring us life. You saw us, and you came for us in Christ. We give you thanks for that, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.